0: This week's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting Network. I'm David Campbell.
1: And I'm Don Mills.
0: Don, we had an interesting conversation today with uh, Dr. Herb Emery, who's the Vaughn Chair in Regional Economic Development at uh, uh, the University of New Brunswick. And we had him on to talk about the importance of an export economy and why in this region, despite the the successful population growth we've seen the last few years, we also have to focus on generating more exports in the region.
2: this is a topic that the general public
0: really know little about,
2: uh, nor care about, frankly. And and it's good to talk about this uh, specific issue because uh, it's important for the future of the region that we become a little bit more export oriented. And maybe you can tell our listeners why it is important.
0: Sure, because just about everything we consume at the household level in our region is imported. So all the car you drive, the phone you use, the furniture, the appliances you buy, 80 to 90% of the food you consume, all of that, most of the services, the entertainment, the television, all of that is all imported. And so that's money that flows out of the region. And we need to offset that with, with export revenue, stuff that we're good at, and then we can buy and people from outside our jurisdiction will buy those products and services and then we'll have a good trade balance and why that matters is because you get taxes from two two sources basically you get it from consumption taxes that's taxes on sales and on labor income and on all that import all that all the value of that imports coming in we're only generating taxes on the sales we're getting no taxes from the labor income And so we get taxes from labor income on the exports, and that's why we get balance. So if you want to have a strong tax base, you have to have a strong export economy. And that export economy, as Herb uh, clearly articulates, has to be based on something called comparative advantage, because you're competing with other jurisdictions around the world, whether it's for fish, whether it's for uh, forest products, whether it's for things like tires. We had Michelin recently. Um, so all of the exports out of this region are competing in global markets, and we have to make sure we have co- a competitive environment uh, from which to do those exports.
2: Yeah, we talked about some of the opportunities that are uh, currently existing. You know, sometimes we don't pay attention to the so-called old uh, the old industries of the past, but uh, when you take a look at things like forestry, still important. Uh, mining going to become increasingly important, things that, that we, you know, use the resources for the land from. Uh, sometimes we tend to look at the, you know, the tech side of things. Uh, you know, certainly uh, organizations like the PEI Bioalliances are doing a good job with their cluster, creating export opportunities for PEI. Um, you mentioned Michelin uh, that uh, supports 3,600 well-paying jobs in Nova Scotia in three different locations, you know, so uh, uh, manufacturing, export business are, are important for the economy. Clearly, uh, you know, it, it, it's un- unclear what proportion of, uh, of our GDP should be oriented towards uh, exports. I, but I think that, you know, in our discussion, you'll find that, you know, the, the the percentages have been flat for some time. And as you yourself point out, is that, the, you know, our, our best economic uh, GDP growth is associated with uh, times when we've had growth in exports, so there's a relationship there that's really important.
0: Yeah, you go all the way back to 1981. There's a very strong correlation between growth in exports and growth in gross domestic product or GDP, and so that's a long, long-term trend, and and I think it's it, it remains in place today. And I think governments and industry leaders have to have to figure out how to do that and the other thing we talked about i think in some detail is is how do you get these local exporters like you did it with your company how do you get a local company that has a really good product or service to think nationally and internationally and build a company with 10 15 20 30 million dollars in annual export sales so you need the big mining companies the big forestry companies but you also need a lot of these young firms that are based here and that want to build globally competitive businesses.
2: Yeah, let me just finish on that on that comment because I, I've always believed that, you know, we haven't been as confident as we need to be in this region about the ability to compete with people elsewhere. I know from my own experience that that is not the case and that if you're going to build your business, you can't really depend on the market the size of Atlantic Canada. It's just too small. So if you want to get the scale and and do some significant uh you know business and building your own uh, company you have to look outside the region and and just to remind everybody we can compete with anybody anywhere and uh you know we need to have confidence that we can do that
0: on that optimistic note here is our conversation with dr herb welcome back to the podcast herb
1: it's good to be back
0: So today we want to talk to you a little bit about the importance of exports and the export economy to a a strong and thriving regional economy here in Atlantic Canada. We've had a lot of discussion about the rapid population growth. There's a lot of focus on the services issues and housing issues and all of the issues that have come with population growth. But in the long run, uh, I think Don and I both agree, and I think you agree too, Herb, uh, that we need to have a, a, a strong export economy. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So I guess the first question for you, Herb, just to level set with the listener, is why why should we even care about exports? Why should the average person in Atlantic Canada or the average listener to this podcast care whether we have an export economy or not? Well,
1: it's a tricky question to answer because it used to be something that was just generally accepted and known that... Wealth creation was really the reason you have people living in a place, that there had to be some reason to reside there, some reason for businesses to be servicing the population. And it's because somebody was doing something that was creating value, generating income, and that was creating needs for things. What we have in the region today is people no longer depend as much on what we produce in the region for their well-being in their minds. They're much more dependent on incomes generated outside of the region, such as transfer payments from the rest of Canada, employment in other provinces, or even pension incomes. And so what we're dealing with today is there's a disconnect between how do you generate your income and reason to exist in a region versus how do you sort of get to be in a nice suburb and live off the avails of someone else? Now, if you want the old economy of Atlantic Canada – to make a go of it, you had to be able to sell something the world wanted, and you had to be competitive and After World War II, this is one of the most successful regions for growth and development, despite the sluggish pace everyone picks on, it was really a problem that you could now grow the size of the population that was rooted here quickly enough to get to that higher per capita GDP. But now the dilemma we face is that we've been substituting federal supports for the most part for export revenue. To keep the economy going and so what we're really looking at today is what's the future of the region one is you get back to exporting creating value and wealth for your region based on what you can produce and uh, compete for and market share around the globe or you can count on uh, mom and dad elsewhere in canada to keep us comfortable and the real battle that i've had since covid started is a lot of new brunswickers feel that their life has been better without exports without growth And they think that we can just carry on as we are. Then when they live in cities like Moncton and Halifax, all they see is everything's booming. Why do you need exports? And what's missing in all of that is an understanding that in some way, in some ways, the concentration of population in the cities is a growth dynamic, but it's not something that's going to carry on forever if there isn't a reason for people to be there. And so this is where we're starting to see concentration of services around the people who can't move and around the things we have to do like healthcare, But it's not the same healthy economy of old where you had industry, you had jobs, you had opportunity for growth, you had opportunities for expansion. And so it's a different kind of economy we're living in today than even 10 years ago yeah one of the one of the challenges
2: that we've always faced in this region is that we have really uh you know a small population a small domestic market to sell things to right so that that limits the scale of any business that uh, is trying to grow within the region you know um and so if you want to grow a bigger firm uh, you you have to look for other markets you know i did that in my own business you know, I. I expanded first to, to the region and then to the rest of the country, and then I started to do some work in other, uh, other jurisdictions, and, and that brought, uh, that brought uh, income into the region, allowed me to create you know, pretty good-paying jobs. And, and it gave us a reputation of being a national company operating out of this region. And you know, we were early in that, by the way, Herb, when when it set up Corporate Research Associates. There's no market research company that was headquartered in in, in this region that re- could do work anywhere. And so that was a you know that was a bit of the you know an early uh, sort of uh, look at what's possible for our for our region. And I have to tell you another story. This is you know' it's, when I first came to this region, I'm, you know, I admit I'm not, I wasn't born here. I'm, I'm a come from away. I've been here long enough, people actually think I'm from here. But nonetheless, when I first came here, I, you know, I lived, uh, I was brought up and educated in Quebec. <clears throat> and when I got here, I noticed a really funny attitude. The attitude was like, uh, you know, we can't compete with anybody else. We're not good enough to compete with anybody else. It was, you know, I found that in the first, I don't know, a dozen years that I was here, and I thought, why? I don't get that. Why, why can't we compete? You know, there was a, there was a, there was a mental barrier early on, and now this goes back into the 70s and 80s, so it's a long time ago, obviously. You know, I'm old enough to bring lots of history, but, you know, that's, that's the kind of the sentiment that was that I found in this region, Now I was active in a bunch of things. The good news is that that sentiment, in my view, is completely gone. You know, and it's gone for a couple of reasons. It's gone because you know David and I have done a bunch of work with uh, you know um, uh, connectors and, and 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 those kinds of organizations who are, are working with the startup communities. And the thing that we have going for us right now is that we have a different young population who who have bigger dreams, and we're they're creating companies not for the regional market for the most part, right? David, they're creating companies that are nationally focused or internationally focused that did not exist 30 or 40 years ago so and in, in some respects i think the you know the material there is we're in a better place now than we were even 15 or 20 years ago with the new crop of entrepreneurs coming up who are looking beyond our borders but it, it still remains the fact and i want to ask you the question you know in terms of how important is export to this region, can you give us the numbers to to, uh, where we are right now in terms of exports by each of the four Atlantic provinces?
1: Usually we think about it in shares of GDP accounted for by exports. And New Brunswick is one of the most trade exposed provinces in Canada. I think it's around a third of GDP is accounted for by exports. It gets a little trickier when you get to PEI in Nova Scotia because the trade relations are a little different there. If you think about the ratio of international trade to interprovincial trade, they've always had a ratio of around one, even since NAFTA. And so they're integrating into the national economy in a way that New Brunswick has sort of bypassed and went straight to the U.S. market. And so you don't have a monolith uh, in terms of the regional interest and how these things work. For PEI and Nova Scotia, things like the carbon pricing and the impact on fuels, Uh, access to that central Canadian market where they're integrated a lot of their business interests, that's going to be critical for the future of those two provinces. New Brunswick, meanwhile, is in sort of a dogfight trying to keep its refinery going into the Northeast United States, trying to keep softwood lumber going, trying to keep pulp and paper going, trying to keep the potato trade going and things like that. But again, it's one of those things where you can't just remove the amount of trade out of the region because even if you take that away as a share of GDP as the usual one, think about what do we actually produce that we consume? And food is a big one people become aware of lately because around 95% of what we consume, we import. So how important are exports? Well, that's how you buy your imports. So if I'm going to produce Michelin tires in Nova Scotia, I'm trading those for fruits, vegetables, and meats all around uh, the rest of Canada, which we don't produce here. Let's suppose Michelin decides it's not economic to get to market anymore with the EVs being built in central Canada. You take that industry away, and now you have to ask, how do we pay for what we need to consume? If you can't pay for that, your population leaves. And so the entire future of the region, with aspirations to be a large population region, it's ultimately tied into what you can trade in order to keep the standard of living high. And when you lose that ability to trade for what you need uh, to have a good life or at least a quality of life like everyone else has in Canada, people don't stay. And so that's the big dilemma going forward is that we can have a region with lower exports and a population probably of a million total across the three maritime provinces, or we can continue to trade and maybe go towards three million collectively across the provinces. It's really about the ultimate size of the region and its aspirations depends on can you compete for market share in external markets? And it may be interprovincial, so getting into Montreal and Toronto, or it could be the Northeast United States or it could be China. And the irony when you look around today, where everyone says, What's so important about exports? Think about all those major companies that are around and taken for granted. Uh, seafood processing that just had a big uh, sale in Nova Scotia. blueberries, you guys have talked to all the major entrepreneurs. They're a lot of the reason this region has been prosperous, but they're completely taken for granted today because people are numb to just the value of what they're producing and the innovation that's come out of those businesses as well like it still kills me. I keep hearing all these exporters who are fighting every day for market share are apparently not innovative and not really clear on how to sell things. They're the people we should be talking to. Uh, Not quite often the federal government coming in and saying they see a market for green things that don't exist yet. Uh, We've got a bunch of companies that are pretty damn good at what they've been doing for a long time. And they're even still pretty good at it when they're getting kicked in the ass by the federal government over a lot of policies lately that are aimed at restraining the old industries that we depend on. And in Nova Scotia, just think about the loss of northern pulp, the loss of the forest sector. What's happening is Halifax is still doing okay, but the rest of the province is reaching an existential crisis around what is the future. And when you start to take away things like coal-fired generation, and now you're going to be paying for green generation, let's suppose your power rates start going towards $0.20 a kilowatt hour instead of $0.12 a kilowatt hour. You're likely not going to have a lot of producers in the region. You're going to have people who want to live there and have a means to live there, either through income generated somewhere else. But it's a very different economy you would have in the future if that happens. But in the meantime, when you watch all of the businesses exiting from Nova Scotia, mostly rural, and a lot of it has to do with moratoriums on things that Nova Scotia could be producing, like aquaculture, these are big uh, value-based judgments that Ivany, Ivany Report in 2014 brought up. It looks like since 2014, Nova Scotia has transitioned away from wanting to rely on traditional industries and try something else. And so the big gamble going forward is we're still waiting to see what the something else will be. Uh, but again, I'm guessing with a recession coming, you'll start to see the government paying a lot closer attention to what has made us rich to this point And does it have another gear, which was also in the Ivany Commission's report. Uh, New Brunswick, I just think we're a little lost right now, it's going to take a year or two before they actually realize uh, that a refinery can close down. And if you do lose a refinery, it would be a major hit to the St. John region. If you start losing pulp mills again, you're also going to see more deterioration in the region. So when we talk about exports, the federal growth strategy in 2016 was to increase the number of exporting firms, but they didn't want to grow the traditional industries. They're interested in the ocean opportunities, but often not the traditional ocean sector things, but getting more into digitalization or different tech, uh, developing new export industries around it, which on the one hand is great, but it's still you need a portfolio of these exporting firms. But as long as they keep a focus on uh, maintaining the value that we're capable of producing by being competitive in the region and getting market share elsewhere and adding these new things, then you've got a real opportunity if we're trying to transition away from what we've been good at for a century into something new where we have no comparative advantage, that's where a lot of us are taking a deep breath and wondering what's going to come next.
0: Yeah. And I I think if I could just jump in there, Don, because I think we have, this is a regional podcast. We talk in terms of Atlantic Canada and the maritime provinces and so on, but there are a lot of differences at a provincial level. We see PEI you know, much faster growth rates in terms of population and GDP. But I agree with you with Nova Scotia. It has seen a, um, a weakening of its uh, old traditional industries, including agriculture, just in the last few years. New Brunswick seems to have uh, uh, leapfrogged Nova Scotia. Now, I don't know how much of that is cannabis, and you and I have had that conversation, Herb. But just in terms of crop production and so on, it, New Brunswick is, is doing a lot better than Nova Scotia. Blueberries are growing here and sort of stagnant in Nova Scotia. So it is worth having that discussion. Does Nova Scotia want to have these traditional industries? Don and I have been pushing mining, you know, and and is there a real appetite for forestry, mining, agriculture, aquaculture in Nova Scotia? And I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I think it's worth asking. Well, uh, and uh, you know, I think it's quite apparent
2: that uh, we have attitudinal attitudinal barriers in Nova Scotia that are probably. You know, it's not leading the region close to it in terms of uh, being against stuff, you know, whether it's agriculture or uranium mining or, you know, um, natural gas or whatever. Like there's just seems to be resistance to any use of any kind of resources, forestry or otherwise, to produce jobs and income. And yet, you know, we had uh, Andrew Much, the uh, president of... Uh, Michelin North America. On. And I think that that was an eye opener for Nova Scotians because they've never heard that story before in the way that it was told. Here's a company, as you referenced earlier, that's uh, exporting 1.2 billion dollars of tires around the world, creating 3,600 jobs in three, three manufacturing plants in three different smaller communities in Nova Scotia. It's, you know, it, it is really important uh, to the Nova Scotia economy, most people don't realize how important it is, and they've been here for more than fifty years. You know, uh, and 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 by the way, they just invested what three or four hundred million dollars in expanding their operations. You know, so they're committed to the future here. And uh, you know, uh, by the way, you know, I think they've been pretty well treated by the province of Nova Scotia over the years and the federal government. So that helps. Nonetheless, you know, that that's really important. And as David mentioned as well. You know, people don't understand that mining there's lots of mining opportunities in Nova Scotia, but you know, we've got this attitude, not in my backyard. You can't do it in my you know, sure, but don't do it in my Oh, or windmills, sure, but don't put it in my backyard. You know, it's always that. You know, so how can we possibly transition to something new when we can't get anything done? You know, so I, I worry about that. But I just want to get back to the discussion about the four provinces. Tell me what the trend is in terms of exports. You know, Who's, who's gaining, who's loony, losing right now?
1: Well, for most of what I've seen, it's flat to declining. Maybe some gains in PEI, but again, we're always suspicious of PEI data uh, because sometimes it looks too good to be true. But certainly in New Brunswick, I would say the big trend is mostly flat, but the fluctuations you see have most often been since COVID from the change in the prices of what we're exporting as opposed to the quantities produced. And so what has happened in the region is a lot of the industries seem scaled to what we would call a steady state output. What they produce day to day or month to month doesn't change. And what they're living off of is fluctuation in value. So what they're counting on is that some years it'll be really high, other years it'll be really low. And you saw what happened with softwood lumber during COVID when they started getting record prices. Everyone said, now we want to share that. Well, the whole industry has been scaled to that kind of long-run effect, and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But what we have is what I would say we have an ecosystem of exporters in the four provinces that is sustainable. They figured out a way to maintain it with the access to the stocks that they need for the resource-based industries. They've got the relationships with the community to keep on producing, but it's fragile. And this is a challenge when you look at some of the cities that when they say, we don't want the industry here anymore, we want to tax it. The risk that they run is they're going to change the, let's call it the fragile balance that it makes sense to stay here and produce more. And there's a lot of complacency that, especially larger companies, won't close up and move somewhere else. But when you start seeing 13 billions for a single plant in Ontario, you start to realize that industrial policy has suddenly got a lot more expensive. And if we lose the attention of some of these exporters we have in the region, they will look at greener pastures, maybe not moving everything, but the next tranche that could have been exports from here will be somewhere else. And so I expect in the region If things go well with the current way we're governed in the four provinces, we'll keep what we have and it will remain flat. I don't expect to see exports grow because in order for exports to grow, you have to make different decisions like giving more access to uh, energy resources, improving the cost of producing from here by ensuring that your hydro or your electricity rates won't go through the roof with decarbonization. We now have a gap of our gasoline prices of about 20 cents a liter with Ontario. Like, (laughs) how do you compete with that if I can just move where the trucking industry is concentrating anyway and have my production there if my inputs are being brought in and my my outputs are being exported as well? So that takes us back to resource industries, mining, forestry, ocean-based. Forestry, are you prepared to have a higher allowable annual cut so that it's possible to scale up the businesses that are here. Are you going to bring in competing interests for the timber resource, or are you going to allow the incumbents to grow? So this is something in Atlanta, Canada. Atlantic Canadians don't like big companies here. They like big companies to bring them stuff from elsewhere, but there's a lot of, uh, I think, hostility towards seeing successful companies get larger in this region, which creates a real problem for, for growing more. They keep a low profile. So in terms of where we headed with all this, I think you'll see governments that want to add more exporters, lots of more small companies that are a little more uh, grateful and compliant for the support they get. They don't want to have to fight with the big guys getting more powerful or more dependent on them. But the only way you're going to be competitive globally is by having those large companies in some sense get larger. And you're going to have to think about policies that really... Reduce some of the headwinds they faced, in particular regulation and mining, uh, social license, land claims. And that's a lot of heavy lifting for provincial governments that none of them have touched. Like fracking. Go back, what is it now, almost 20 years, David? They were supposed to deal with five conditions. Have any of those five conditions been resolved? I don't think so. And now that most of the province of New Brunswick is under a title claim. So who's going to come here and mine? It's, uh, you, we don't have the conditions right now in Atlanta, Canada, and much of Canada to do investment in energy-based uh, industries because the federal government hasn't made it clear that it will even be possible if a province says yes, that someone won't object and go further up the chain or they'll change the regulatory requirements. So in order for us to export more, we have to change the way we govern. We have to be more focused on making sure that it makes sense to invest here. And that's what's been missing in this region for some time. And I think if you go back when to the 1990s, when things really boomed, that was when the federal government withdrew its clear support for the region. And the sort of existential crisis gripped everyone, what are we going to do if we don't have the feds? And you saw a lot of entrepreneurial spirit unleashed in the region. And So that's that's sort of where a lot of people are still angry about the austerity era under the Frank McKenna. We'll mess up who the premiers of the other provinces were at the same stage. But now we're sort of back to the complacency again that we become used to a comfortable living. We've got consumption not tied to our own production. But what happens in a higher interest rate environment over the next five years? And that's where I think the leaders that are going to do this, they're not in power yet. The guys who are in power, they're not thinking in terms of what we need to get this region back to growth. They're thinking about how do we keep everyone from complaining, is what it seems to be. And again, most of what they're doing is going to Ottawa saying, pay for this project. And that's not a long-run strategy for the economy.
2: I just want to bring up PEI. You mentioned it as something that, you know, it's hard to figure out what's going on on over there early on in the podcast we had rory francis on who is the executive director i guess of the pei bio alliance and you know they claim at least a year or so ago that you know they were now uh, generating uh 400 over more 400 million dollars of revenue and all of it coming from off the island now that's not you know technically export dollars but it's bringing in money from another jurisdiction and uh dave and i both like the what they've done over there because they've they've, they've clustered a bunch of uh, new businesses around the concept of taking advantage of a certain you know uh, scientific uh, base that they have over there and they have seem to have been successful so you know it's it's it's, it's manufacturing it's manufacturing, it's products that are not in existence anywhere else, or at least mostly everywhere else. And, and it's targeting, you know, um, a, a segment of, of their economy that's completely new from, it's not potatoes, <laughs> obviously. So like, it, you know, so I, I like that model. So, you know, if, if you think little PEI uh, can figure out a strategy, an economic development strategy, and that's what it is uh, around this uh, BioAlliance cluster, I don't know how many people they have working a couple thousand people already in in a population of one hundred sixty thousand. you know it's it's meaningful right so i just think that you know we need to have and that was all done mostly through the private sector you know it had good support from the uh, government but it's a good model for uh, other provinces to say what is it that we can be good at what can we do to you know uh, build a cluster that can be export oriented so I, you know i think that there's there are people and resources that, you know, and that's the confidence that I see in doing these podcasts, frankly, that we're, we're hearing these stories and we're sharing these stories of what is possible and and, and dreaming beyond, you know, the past. Right. And uh, I just think the bi the, the PEI Bio Alliance is a great model for the rest of the region. And and maybe maybe the ocean cluster supercluster is going to be the same thing, you know, uh, because, you know, it's taking advantage of what we have and, you um, it may be early days there, but I, I think the same kind of thing can happen, um, you know,
0: with, with a little good management. But you still need the big players. So BioVectra, of course, is 100, 150 million of the, of the exports yeah, yeah. from that cluster. Uh, if you yeah. talked about Michelin. So even if you're looking at ocean industries, I would say, yes. where are the big players? Where are the global firms that could generate 100 million in exports from an ocean tech or an ocean-based yeah. uh, that's not selling fish? Right. Yeah. And I don't I don't know that we've seen seen that yet. But you do need the young startups. A few of them will take off, but you know, yeah. you need the big companies too. And I think that's that's uh that's an important consideration.
1: So I just want to agree with Don that I think PEI does have the right approach to an economic strategy and it fits well with what you see in Western Canada between Manitoba, Saskatchewan. They decided what are we good at and they mm. put the innovation, the R and D in so that's all good. The skepticism about PEI is really going, I'm going to throw Richard Sayon under the bus for his book uh, that he did about A Tale of Two Canadas. The piece that we're not sure about is that a lot of the growth of the economy in PEI is driven by population increase, not these industries yet. The industries right. are critically important for the future. But what's happening in Atlanta, Canada, is we're getting a lot of population increase that has nothing to do with the fundamental base because, A lot of these industries are early days, and as you say, they will grow. And so what we don't know is what's the sustainable part of the population increase that we've seen. And with PEI, there's a lot of residents who are moving there, not because they're going to work in these industries, but because they've cashed out of somewhere else and they think it's a nice place to live. It was surprising to me to see that they're struggling with their finances again in PEI as a government, despite all the growth. And a lot of that's coming from the fact that you're getting a lot of residents coming to the region who want services. And some of it is they're paying taxes, but a lot of it is they're not contributing through the labor market the same way. And so when you get these industries, the risk we run is that the people who want to move here because it's a nice place to live, they crowd out the more productive workers that could have come in and worked in those industries or been attracted by the higher wage jobs And that's the tricky piece since COVID is just disentangling those two drivers of who's coming into our region and for what purpose. But most of our growth has been driven by interprovincial migration of the last three years. And as you've seen in the housing markets, it's creating a critically uh, (laughs) critical point in can we continue Uh, just because it's not affordable. at the kind of wage rates you can pay in this region. Uh, And whether or not remote work is going to continue with the tech sector melting down in a lot of Canada, I don't know. And so there's a lot of nervousness, I think, out there right now about how sustainable is a lot of the gains that we saw through COVID. And in the background, as you discussed, there were these longer term strategies like PEI's bio strategy that you hope is what sort of comes emerging from if there's ashes, emerges from the ashes and keeps the place going. But at the moment, I think it's competing agendas. If you're just drawing population into the region, that's easy. There's lots of policies you can use to do that. If you want to sustain the population, then you have to get back to exports and the industries you're talking about.
2: Uh, just a sort of a, one final uh, question for me that uh, to set the stage a little bit, you know, um we, we've talked a little bit about which uh you know what it's being exported from the region. Uh, you know, obviously uh, uh you know Nova Scotia's uh, you know, tires and fish, basically and, and some forest products. Uh PEI is potatoes and maybe, you know, the bio alliance uh, sector a little bit. Uh, New Brunswick as uh Potatoes again, right? Uh, and uh, oil uh, or gasoline refined products is big. Um, Newfoundland, its oil. Oil accounts for I think fifty percent of uh, their economy over there at the moment, if I'm not mistaken. So, but they also are—they also have a strong mining uh, uh, sector too. So you know they're heavily resource-dependent uh, and with a lot of a lot of potential in mining. The mining side is probably based on conversations we had with their executive director of the money and social up there, it's, uh, it's almost unlimited uh, what the possibilities are there. Are there any other things that, that, that are emerging as potential, you know, key exports uh, from this region that you see?
1: Well, there's a, when you look at it, you think about what's the comparative advantage of the region and what could you actually make larger with more focus on, let's say, just creating business conditions that make sense to scale it up here. So when we were doing the roundtable on manufacturing competitiveness, there was a lot of focus on things like digitalization, labor-saving technologies like automation, industry 5.0, which hasn't been coming into the region in part because we're overly reliant on a larger network of smaller and medium-sized enterprises that uh, do quite well when the exchange rate bounces in their favor, not so well when they don't bounce in their favor, but they're not upgrading. The large companies are already there, but they need to sort of have access to feedstocks and things like that. So you have to always think about that group. The incumbent companies in the industries you mentioned, they have the capability of getting larger. But you have to create the conditions that you will give them license to in some sense. Then you've got industries that are good and could be much larger. That would be a lot of what you discussed in PEI. And I think it's where the ocean supercluster is swimming around, to use that term, is <laughs> that it's an a resource, the oceans, that has been largely untapped in Canada because we haven't felt a need to turn to it. And it's going to need a lot of R&D, which is, again, something that research and development investment, which has been weak in this region for a really long time. And to get R&D in the region, we don't want universities doing it all. What we want is businesses coming to the region. Some of it's going to be startups, some of it's going to be risky, and so it's going to require a different way of thinking in government if you want to transition to these potential growth exporting industries based on the resources and comparative advantage of the region. If you just think of something as simple as aquaculture, that's a success story that came out of an R&D development and figuring out how to do things, manage the disease risks and everything else. But now we're sort of back to a point where the population is limiting its growth potential again. But aquaculture, uh, vertical farming, there's all kinds of things that keep coming up as opportunities to grow of what you would think of as more traditional resource-based industries. And so I see a lot of opportunity for those. The things that I don't see a lot of opportunity for are things where – we're trying to compete, but we have no natural comparative advantage that we have to build the faculty that's going to produce the students who work in that industry, or we have to import all of the inputs in order to process into something else, which is under, back before NAFTA, that was a lot of the industries that came to the region, is you could bribe small companies to come here and manufacture, they imported what they needed to build with, and they exported what they did, the subsidies went away, and often they went away. So you always have to go back to think about what's the value proposition of exporting from this region. And we always have to think about comparative advantage. Now, one that's an interesting to think about is historically a comparative advantage of this region was the abundance of labor. That you could find labor supply, it was fairly low wage, even though productivity was low, but it was profitable to come here and produce. That advantage is gone. So now you have to think about How do you help the potential exporters make the transition to a more modern way of manufacturing? And that was sort of where ACOA was working under Francis McGuire, trying to get more automation, more modernization, and that was the route to go. The challenge was you've got aging entrepreneurs in the region who aren't necessarily looking at selling out the company to stay here. They may just be winding things down. And these are things that were known in 2016, and I haven't seen any government take them seriously about if you want these businesses to carry on, how are you going to do it? There's some terrific initiatives like the Wallace McCain Institute and their cohorts, uh, where you look at how they've been mentoring the, the next group of entrepreneurs. And I think we've got all those seeds here. There's a lot of incredible companies, but right now they fit in. We have, if you go to your buckets of profitable exporters, agriculture, forestry, fish, oil refinery, And then in that other category, what we should be looking at is all those medium-sized companies, or maybe small, who might be candidates for moving up to that medium to large category that could export, and they may not singly stand out as a new industry that matches up with, say, pulp and paper, but collectively, you start to get a bunch of 500 employee firms exporting into the United States or globally, it starts to add up to a lot, and you now have a more, much more diversified export base. And so, again, it's do we have the bandwidth as, as government economic developers to not just pay attention to the big companies, but also be able to look at where the opportunities is emerging with some of these really sharp entrepreneurs in the region? And they're here. They re- I think if I go back to what I've learned most about Atlanta, Canada, the most valuable resource this place has is smart people who are committed to doing it here. So when I've talked to entrepreneurs and said, why don't you just move somewhere else where it's easier? They don't want to do that. And so the comparative advantage of the region in a lot of ways are these deep roots that people have here that you don't see the same way. If say I go to Alberta where people were there for a few years if they could make a go of it, they'll stay. And if not, they'll go to wherever the next uh, value proposition comes from. But especially the the Acadian entrepreneurs in New Brunswick are impressive with their commitment to the region and what they're prepared to do to make a go of it. And so I think there's, so, there's, that's there's, a talent base we should be looking at.
2: I, I just want to add one more to the list because we've had uh, several podcasts on this and it's uh, it's hydrogen. Uh, uh, more 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 clearly, it's wind. One, one advantage we have, Herb, in this region is wind. We have a lot of wind. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's driving some of the green uh, and, uh, hydrogen projects uh, that we've talked to. There's, you know, there's at least uh, four pro- uh, three provinces involved in this, uh, you know, with uh, even the port of Beldoon looking at, um, you know, a hydrogen hub using SMRs, which is another possible uh, export opportunity for New Brunswick, if they get it right. But uh, certainly hydrogen could be a big export uh, product from this region. You know, we seem to be earlier in those projects than elsewhere in the country. Would you not agree?
1: Yeah. So New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, there's always these early leadership and things. The ideas come up here first. What I've now lived here long enough to see is the region keeps giving up leadership that you get leapfrogged because we spend so much time talking about it. And the next thing we notice someone uh, in the neighboring jurisdiction has done it. Or if something like smart grid, when David was chief economist was really great stuff and it was coming in, but now it's, it's all been developed somewhere else. And so now it looks like more of just a technology deployment thing as opposed to a technology development and the value proposition when smart grid came in was NB Power had this integrated utility that you could test a lot of these things on. But between the regulator continually saying no to something as basic as smart meters, it just became a place where you lose the lead after a while. And I think this is sort of the uh, the floods and the Jerry Pond perspective is that I think they had the rowing analogy that once you get the lead, you never give it up. And that's the lesson that keeps getting missed lately in the region is yeah, great. You can do hydrogen. But to get there, you have to look at what other regions who are also doing hydrogen, like out west, they're still they're going to do it as well. How hard are they working on it? How much capital is coming in? And how hard are they working on the regulatory regime and the conditions that you're going to need to get there? Bill Dune, we're still fighting over what are we going to do with the coal-fired plant? Like we had maritime iron coming through that could have had some opportunities to figure out how to transition into hydrogen as well. But at the time, no one was talking about hydrogen. And so, again, it, it's sort of the region has to sort of let some of these forward thinking things continue to go as opposed to saying it's another Brickland. Like I keep hearing right. with SMRs. SMRs are here because LePro's the here. There's a right. reason to do nuclear in New Brunswick. But again, the headwinds in this place to make any, to get ahead compared to what Ontario is able to do with nuclear. They're now going into, (laughs) looks like they're giving up on SMRs and just going back to big uh, can-do type reactors. But the fact that Ontario already has the scale, has the political buy-in, and in New Brunswick, we keep running op-eds about, we're not sure these things are safe. Most of the polling shows New Brunswickers aren't afraid of nuclear energy. But again, the government seems timid every time there seems to be a backlash. And what's missing here is sort of that commitment that if you get a lead, we're going to help you stay there. And that's where I think we're going to lose these opportunities unless we have a change of attitude amongst leadership.
0: Yep. So I think that's absolutely right. Particularly in the context of New Brunswick, we did try to lead on Smart Grid. We fell behind. We tried to lead on cybersecurity. I'm not sure where we are. With that one, and certainly with SMRs, um, you know, we were talking about it when we that that term SMR wasn't widely even wisely used in the media, and of course now everybody's talking about SMRs around the globe. Uh, so hopefully, we've got momentum there. I, I don't know. I just wanted to come back to your comment about the comparative advantage of of you know soil or or commitment to the to the to be being from here. This is why that's such a challenge her because 66 percent of all the startups on the in the pei bioscience cluster have at least one foreign born founder so they don't have that same commitment to the to 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 west prince or to yarmouth or to saint Quentin that uh, that uh, that the uh, people that are multi-generation here so so i take your point that that group particularly the acadian entrepreneurs was very committed But the next generation, many of them are going to be coming from India and from, you know, from China and from Europe and from South America, and they won't have that same level of commitment. So we do need to work on a comparative advantage that isn't based on, like, people's love of the maple syrup and rolling hills, right? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Historically, most places,
1: the reason an industry is there is because somebody wanted to live there and they had the idea, so... Henry Ford was in Detroit. (laughs) That's a lot of the reason cars are there. Like we sort of forget about that now because we're used to being so mobile that uh, like with tech, let's say, increasingly you just keep hearing you can't make a go of it here after a certain while. You're going to have to exit and go to the big place. And so when you get that defeatism that no one's Mm -hmm. no longer looking to sort of commercialize here or scale up, then that tells us our opportunity is really just to come up with ideas and export the intellectual property that we might get started. But within, in a lot of cases, I do think that there are these, let's call them weirdos, who just love a place. And they, in a way, become the entrepreneurs that tend to transform it. Because we, if you think about amenities and great communities, they don't want to just live anywhere. They want to live in a place they like and They know their neighbors kind of thing. And I think this has been a theme I heard from you, David, or someone about the transition and ownership of fish plants up in the northeast of New Brunswick, is that the external owners of the plants aren't the same kind of community members that the traditional local community owners were. And so that's a transition as well in the nature of your community that I do think there is something to having home teams over uh, free agents brought in from around the globe that your home teams do have a different kind of commitment to place. And a lot of the history of Ontario was based on that homegrown entrepreneurship in the 19th century that came out of the resource industries. Quebec always had a different dynamic in that they were much more dependent on external capital and things coming and going. And so with a lot of that, I do think that you know, if you have a business school and entrepreneur stuff going on in the universities here, if you can train that local ecosystem up and they get good ideas, as long as you have a play, you've got the policies and regulations in place to help them make a go of it once they get successful, then you've got something going forward. And I'm not going out on a big limb there because that's what they did after World War II. That's where the Irving corporations came from. That's where the McCain's came from. It was growing these homegrown entrepreneurs. And Donald Savoie could keep you going for hours on all, <laughs> all the stories of how it worked. But that was really the success of the region was developing that talent in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, and I, and I agree with that. I just think it's there's this complex reality that one big mining project will get you as much exports as... 4 or 500 of the average exporting entrepreneur right because a lot of our entrepreneur exporters are quite small they might have a half million or a million or 2 million in sales very few of them scale up to 100 million i don't know where you where did where did you end up don when you were at your peak what was how, how many millions of dollars in export revenue were you generating for nova scotia
2: well, I had a couple of businesses, and uh, in total, they were probably uh, they were probably getting close to thirty million dollars in uh, top line sales, and eighty uh, percent were coming from somewhere else. Yeah,
0: so that's a serious export. If we could get more twenty and thirty million dollar exporters, we'd be doing well. But a lot of them are are pretty small in terms of their total export bill. I, I need to get us back on track here because we're already at minute forty five, <laughs> and we've got more questions. Uh, but I do want to come back to you. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, trade agreements. Um, So we're going to skip a few questions there, Don, but I think it's important to have Herb's feedback on that because when you look at just the straight correlation between GDP growth and not on a per capita basis, so there's some nuance there, but when, when the NAFTA came in, you know, in New Brunswick in particular, but I think the region as a whole, of course, Newfoundland is obscured by what happened with oil and gas, but it did look like there was a straight correlation between real GDP growth and NAFTA. So what are your thoughts on that? Did NAFTA actually help this region in terms of growing its economy? Uh, and uh, and uh, what are your thoughts there? And then we'll talk to you maybe about the future uh, of, of trade agreements.
1: It's So NAFTA was critical because if you go back to the McDonald Commission in 1985, Canada was in a serious problem with productivity and nowhere to go. The domestic market was basically the size it was going to be. There wasn't a lot you could do. Now, you get to NAFTA, and initially it coincided with that huge recession. Everyone said it was a bust. But then you look at the growth that came from it, which was really based on we changed from having international firms setting up branch plants to sell in Canada, to all of a sudden we had multinational setting up branches to export into the United States. And that led to a massive boom in investment and in manufacturing. And then we helped it along with a low exchange rate. But a lot of the wealth that we created came from the expansion of international trade, particularly in the NAFTA region. And it basically grew on top of a stable interprovincial trade volume. And so it was really an example of just by getting access to a larger market, we all got richer. So what happened in the Maritimes is there were two uh, channels. One is New Brunswick was able to take advantage of greater exports to the United States. So you see New Brunswick's ratio of international trade to domestic trade goes up to, let's call it, two whereas Nova Scotia and PEI stayed down around one. And what was happening with those two places, they're still doing well, but they're getting well because they're integrated with a growing national economy. So the national economy boom benefits everyone. Now, at the same time, the national interest was changing because if our competitive advantage is based on multinationals based in Ontario and Quebec exporting into the U.S., it started to put pressure on the old policies that tried to spread the wealth around the country. And so what you see is that the the thinning of the border between Canada and the US and in a sense, a thickening of the border between the provinces, that we were now less integrated as a national economy and much more tied into what was happening north-south. So when you get Donald Trump coming in saying we're going to tear that up, it's terrifying for two reasons. One is... We're highly dependent on the U.S. market because we went all in for our well-being, and so to lose that would be catastrophic. And then the second one is it's not clear what we would do to replace it if it went away. Now, along the way, New Brunswick has wound up in a dogfight because of its own goal with the Auditor General saying we subsidized forestry. Now we have softwood lumber tariffs coming in, even with the free trade agreement. And so again, the trade barriers keep creeping back in. And this is where it becomes a message of governments always have to keep their eye on the ball and making sure those borders stay as open as possible. Uh, But again, the complacency that's been happening over the last decade is that we take it for granted that you just get access to the US, which we don't. And we're now seeing that with the energy sector out west, which was also one of the major drivers of our well being of the last decade uh, that. You can't get the pipelines built. You can't get the oil expansion into that region because Canada doesn't want to export fossil fuels. We're seeing this with the refinery where they don't get credit for the cleaner fuels they export to the U.S., only the cleaner fuels that they sell in the region, which makes it more expensive to refine here. So agreements are one piece of it, but you still have to have governments that think about what do you need to do to maintain the conditions of that agreement, and make sure that they're enforced. And, you know, this will come up in weird ways, like the dairy quota is surprising. It's still been allowed to hold up for as long as it has. But, again, politically, that's a powerful group in Canada just because of Quebec.
2: Just want to ask you about the newer trade agreements, uh, such as CETA. Uh, Is there any chance that this will help diversify Canadian exports away from um, the, the U.S. in particular?
1: I think the hope's always been there, but the strange thing about trade agreements is that they're supposed to be that you open up doors for things that the other country doesn't have that you have, and you bring in what they do, but often what you see is these agreements, they sort of liberalize the things we're already doing anyway, like agriculture, and so the net gain from the trade is always the uncertain part, because there's always these clauses that are underneath it. So on the surface, it says we have better access, but now you have to have certain certifications. There has to be other sort of border controls. And so when it's all said and done, you have to sort of figure out what was the effective reduction in the tariff that came in. And CETA has probably been successful at expanding some exports, but probably not as much as people would have hoped. We also had the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I'm not sure what's happened there. In a lot of cases, we just we probably got the agreement and then didn't do the coincident development of the marketing uh, strategies that you would need. We didn't do the coincident development of the uh, infrastructure you need to get to those markets uh, so that you can handle it or ship them in a way that is successful. And so again, it, with a lot of this, I'm never sure why we didn't see more growth from CETA and Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um I don't think it's a problem with the business community. I think it's a problem usually that the agreement wasn't as generous as we thought. And we need to look at the fine print.
0: They don't have two by, sorry, they don't have two by fours in Europe. You actually have to recalibrate your machines to cut logs <laughs> to a different <laughs> size.
2: Well, there's that. We, uh, we, we, we just want to final, uh, I guess the final question uh, Related to trade, uh, free trade, like one of the challenges we have is interprovincial barriers. It's hard uh, to do business in other provinces. You know, uh, former Premier McKenna was a big proponent of, uh, you know, making freer trade between the province a priority. We seem to have a problem with that. What do you think about what needs to be done to open up those interprovincial boundaries uh, for trade?
1: well, I was living out west when they did the uh, agreement between British Columbia and Alberta, which really affected mostly the the uh, regulated professions and things like that and recognition of credentials. And so back in the 1990s and 2000s, the interprovincial barriers were really seen around labor mobility. And right. a lot of that was also trying to get more maritimers out of the maritimes and into the western energy sector. And so there was a lot of push around uh, just getting more freer mobility, the trade in goods thing didn't really come up so much because a lot of that, uh, like cars, maybe more of a regional marketing strategy of the companies than the actual provinces. And then when you get to the provinces, it's sort of things like provincial sales tax or other licensing and certification headaches that you have to go through to, if I say wanted to buy my car in Quebec and license it in New Brunswick, things like that. Those things are surmountable if you really want to do it. Trade in beer is a bit silly because we're really talking about my right to buy in another province and bring it back, as opposed to what we should be talking about is how do you let Moosehead get more unfettered access to other provinces and things like that. But what we really need to think about is back again when David was chief economist, there was this thing going on red tape reduction, more harmonization across the region. There's nothing to stop the provinces right now from getting more agreement on regulation so what is the minimum wage in each province? Is that on uniform terms? How are you treating uh, licensing of vehicles or what happens when you uh, move one boundary to the next? A lot of those things could be dealt with, but the political will just never seems to be there. The only one we've seen recently was with carbon pricing. In 2016, we were pushing the province of New Brunswick to just do whatever Nova Scotia, PEI, and Quebec did so that we at least had the same thing. We went a different route with carbon price, whereas I think Nova Scotia went cap-and-trade, which effectively gave them no price above zero. Then when the Fed said to Nova Scotia, now you have to have the carbon price to get the federal backstop, it led to a political pressure for Blaine Higgs to basically take the federal backstop and abandon our own carbon price, Because politically, he wouldn't be able to explain to New Brunswickers why Nova Scotians get a check and you don't. And so we did harmonize on carbon pricing, but for weird reasons. But I think if you really want to take seriously this interprovincial trade, you start in the maritime region, you get more harmonization on regulation. Uh, You could bring on the guys in the trucking industry and ask them what that could look like. And then you do things like you'd tell Quebec to finish that last 25 kilometers of two-lane highway between <laughs> New Brunswick and Quebec, which is still one of the biggest interprovincial trade barriers in Canada. Uh, but I think they're sk- on schedule for 2025. We estimated that would be worth $300 million in extra GDP for New Brunswick alone, just from completing that twinning of the highway. So we've got lots of opportunities that are out there and it's not big ticket items. It's really just governments have to do a little more work than they're used to doing. And they have to take on some of these contentious things. Like they had a committee to look at red tape. What happened to it? Why couldn't they reduce any of those
0: barriers? So, so Herb, so you don't see any advantage to sort of coddling and protecting Small firms and sort of, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I'm being somewhat facetious here, but not entirely, right? So, currently, governments can kind of favor local firms to build up a little bit of an industry capacity. And when you're fully, when you're fully free trade, you can't. You have to accept that bid from the Quebec firm and not take the bid from the New Brunswick firm. And in some cases, you can't even take into consideration the economic value of that firm actually producing product A in your province because if the bid from Quebec is cheaper, I'm talking about government procurement now. So you don't you see any any advantage to sort of coddling and, and sort of keeping up a few little barriers to try and, I don't know, foster industry? Or should you just open, like Frank McKenna, just open everything up, let her, let her rip, let her rip. And the, some of your industries are going to get hammered and hopefully some of your industries are going to do good.
1: I think i I'll go an intermediate step which is you I at least want to see the trade-off identified that if you're going to protect to get these industries which will bring benefits to some locations and some people identify to us what the overall cost is so how much more are we paying for the goods and services how much higher would our taxes be than if we did it the other way show us we get the spillover benefits from the extra jobs this is a big fight right now by the way over the battery plants in Ontario is You're going to get 300 jobs for $14 or whatever it's up to. Is that worth it over the long run? And Ontario is not going to get the spillover benefits from battery production that the same plant would have generated in the U.S. just because it's at the end of the supply chain and not integrated into the larger unit. So with a lot of these things, there may be a good reason for the barrier. But it needs to be done in a way where we look at the barrier and ask what's its purpose, is that still being served, and who's paying for it being in place. And in a lot of cases, I think what's happened in Atlanta, Canada, is that the focus on keeping jobs has meant that we all pay a lot more for everything just so that the jobs will be there. Even though at this state of history, we should be looking at, do we still need that job or do we want that worker over there instead? And so temporary foreign workers would be another example of where we're starting to see, instead of encouraging interprovincial migration or changes in wages that are coming up, we continue to allow temporary uh, labor to come in and keep businesses going status quo. And if you're following the debate in the rest of Canada right now, where the temporary workforce and non-permanent residents are being blamed for the housing crisis, this is becoming a hot political issue, is that is this the kind of thing that we want to keep doing because it serves some interest, but it's not serving the greater collective good. So you can't just necessarily say we're getting rid of all licensing of medical professionals. Oh, wait, we did that one. Um <laughs> If you're licensed as a doctor in Nova Scotia, why can't you be a doctor in New Brunswick? That kind of thing. Yeah. So we do see that there's a will and a way when the needs are there. But I think it's really just you should have almost a department looking at these things regularly. Mm. Should we continue on with this barrier? Does it make sense? What happens if the city of Halifax comes up with $100 million to subsidize new businesses that then threaten to move away from Moncton? Do you yeah. want to see that? That's a trade barrier as well.
0: I think, I think we're gonna to have to leave it there, Herb. We, we you know maybe when when next time we have you on, we'll do more of a Joe Rogan thing where we have you on for like three hours. And, you know, <laughs> people don't want to listen all that long; they don't have to. But this has don't been very. For listeners,
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. they can always turn it off. I just want to ask you one last thing, though. What are you working on these days? You got you got any reports? Got any papers coming out that that should be of interest to the listeners?
1: Well, I've been doing a a few lately that have been more oriented towards looking at post-secondary education in the region so we've been looking at people who graduate from uh, regional universities how likely are they to stay how much do they earn compared to the ones who go then we looked at students who went away for university did they come back how did they do when they came back and things like that and so we've been learning a lot about uh, post-secondary education in the region there's a lot of myths around it like the uh The students don't stay. The fact is students from the Maritimes who go to a Maritime University stay in the region. A lot of the perception that students go is coming from students from other regions of Canada who come in for the degree, but they go home after. Uh, When we looked at New Brunswick Community College students, they tend to go back home after they uh, finish their diplomas and things like that. So a lot of the myths that you drain communities if they don't have local access we found out wasn't going on and the more recent one is we're looking at what happens to university dropouts because there's a really high rate of dropping out in this region and it turns out they don't do too badly and in fact they do as well as most arts graduates and so this sort of gets into thinking through what does this tell us about the labor market and what's in demand we're starting to look at uh, what's happening with uh We want to study labor demand in particular instead of just labor supply, so we're doing some work with a group that puts together a database on job, uh, basically job ads, where we can drill down into the skills that are needed and things like that. But I I would say where we're headed over the coming year is a deeper dive on the labor market to really understand what skills are in demand, how well we're matching to it, and what the prospects really are when we think we're bringing in newcomers and saying, here's some ICT jobs, and then they start reporting no one ever calls us back when we apply. And so we're trying to figure out the efficiency implications of all of that.
0: Sounds like a topic for a future Insights podcast. Thank you so much, Herb, for joining us today, and we wish you all the best.
1: Thanks for indulging me again, guys. I appreciate coming on. (laughs) Thanks, Herb.
0: You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.